You know, in preparation for the 50th uh, anniversary Thanksgiving services and the celebration we've had this past year, uh, I've had the chance to review our church's history. Uh, I've delved deep into uh, the various decades of our church. And I've even had the opportunity and was intentional in talking to men and women who lived through the different decades of our church's history. And it's clearly evident that God's grace has been upon this church in our history But I won't sugarcoat our history because our church really went through some troubled times. In my own estimation, as I examine history, in our 50 years, there have been at least three occasions, three times, where a wave of people have left our church. Perhaps four, but at least three. When I've talked to those who have left our church, because I want to know why they left, I hear their stories. And while, admittedly, some of their reasons are petty, many have quite legitimate reasons. And I've admitted to you before that if I was a church member during those times, I would have probably left this church as well. And that's why I especially praise the men and women who were faithful to stay during the troubled times of our church I even respect more those who left and then came back because I can only imagine the humility with which they must have undergone to come back and return to a church you've left. During the troubled times of our church, many were asking, does this church have any hope? Can it still be relevant today? Would the church be able to meet its financial obligations Would the church be able to make an impact in the community as it once did? People were worried. And because the worries were many, it was indeed troubling times. But throughout these times of trouble, the one constant is that Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the author and the perfecter of our faith, is the one who was gracious enough to see fit that our church continue to exist, to ensure that our church today can even flourish. How does an unchanging God, who is able to comfort us in our troubled times and to comfort you in your troubled times, how is he able to do so today? That's what we want to take a look at this morning as we continue our study in the book of Ezekiel. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Ezekiel. We're going to be taking a look at chapters 33 and 34 this morning. Who is this person who comforts us in troubled times? As you're turning to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, I want you to remember a few weeks back when we were studying chapter 3. In chapter 3 of the book of Ezekiel, God had appointed the prophet Ezekiel to be God's watchman for the people of Israel. And if you remember, a watchman is to speak truth to the people and deliver the word of God. A watchman was God's spokesperson, warning of the coming enemy, warning of the enemy's tactics, which we talked about last week. Challenging the people to live a life that was consistent with God's word in order to please God. The watchman himself was to live in obedience to the word of God because his life was to mimic the truths that he proclaimed. And that's why I challenged our church that we are to be the watchmen of our generation. 
so that we can make an impact in our community. It's interesting as we unfold chapter 33, there is a recommissioning of Ezekiel as the watchman. Look with me as I read verses 1 and 2. Again the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon the land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, jump down to verse 7, So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. Now why does Ezekiel need to be recommissioned here in chapter 33? And this recommissioning process is recounted in 20 verses. Almost uses verbatim the words the Lord spoke to Ezekiel in chapter 3 and chapter 18. The reason the prophet has to be recommissioned is that there is a subtle but distinct shift in his focus now. Because in the first part of the book of Ezekiel, the historical context is that it was prior to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. It was prior to the final exile of the Jewish people, which history tells us happens in 586 B.C. And therefore, prior to the fall of Jerusalem, Ezekiel's prophetic messages were centered around God's impending judgment and the justification for that judgment. But now his focus would be different. Because now Ezekiel would speak of God's salvation and God's restoration for a disobedient nation. Because now in this context, the city had fallen. While the message would still be the same, the theme, the general theme of the book of Ezekiel, a call for the people to live responsibly in light of the Word of God, the purpose of why they should do so changes. Prior to chapter 33, they are to live responsibly because of God's impending judgment. Now they are to live responsibly because of God's future promised restoration. As watchmen of our generation, we are to call ourselves and others also to live lives with personal integrity and responsibility in light of the Scriptures. We're to do so because there is judgment if we don't. There are consequences of sin, and we are to do so because Jesus Christ can come back at any time, and we are to be watchful and waiting. Jump to verse 21 with me. Look what it reads. And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, that one who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been captured. Ezekiel, if you remember, was part of the first wave of exiles along with Daniel. And they had settled earlier in the land of Babylon. And they weren't getting all of the news that was happening in the land of Judah and in the city of Jerusalem. Now, a survivor from a great distance comes and makes it to Babylon and tells Ezekiel and the exiles there this sad and devastating news. The city has been captured. The city has been destroyed. And if you remember, God prophesied a brutal siege. So Ezekiel's prophecies has been fulfilled, but it must still have hit the community hard. You see, even though you know something's going to happen, when it actually happens, it really hurts. Like if you know that a loved one is going to die, and you know that day will eventually come, but the day you hear the news of your loved one's passing, 
it still hits you hard when the reality of the situation sinks in. While it might be a surprise for the people who receive this news, our God is never surprised by history's unfolding events because He is omniscient and He is sovereign. And look what He does before the messenger brings this devastating news. Verse 22. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the man who came had escaped. And he had opened my mouth. So when he came to me in the morning, my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. In God's perfect timing, if you remember, Ezekiel was mute, was made mute. That means he could not speak unless God gave him news with which he needed to share with the people. But generally, he could not speak. For seven years, he was silent. The night before the messenger came that brought devastating news that the city of Jerusalem had fallen, the Bible tells us Ezekiel's tongue was loosened because now Ezekiel's ministry as a watchman prophet would be to comfort the people in their troubled times to encourage them because now it seemed like finality to these people. You know, when we read the first part of the book of Ezekiel, we may think that God is a very mean God, that God is vindictive in His ways and God isn't very caring for His people. But He is like a loving parent who is forced to discipline His children. When He spanks, He wants to say, this hurts me much more than it hurts you. It hurts the heart of God to have to discipline His children. He does not enjoy it. And that's why, as He is disciplining the people of Israel in exile, He sends to them again Ezekiel. Not with words that say, I told you so, but words of comfort that says, God is still with you. Now, in their troubled times, these people would be looking for someone to guide them. And we would naturally turn to leaders who would guide us through our troubled times. But there was a problem. We get to chapter 34. In verses 1 to 10, we're told that there are no leaders to turn to. In fact, the Lord indicts Israel's current leaders as being corrupt and being useless. They are pictured here in these 10 verses of chapter 34 as irresponsible shepherds. In fact, in verse 3, they're accused of only thinking of themselves and took advantage of the people, feeding themselves, verse 3 says, when they should have fed the sheep. They didn't care for the people's welfare. Verse 5, the people were left on their own, and so they were scattered, verse 5 tells us, because there was no shepherd. They cared only for themselves. So in these troubled times, where would Israel find comfort and encouragement And as we're going to see in verses 11 to the end of the chapter, it would be the Lord Himself who would take on the mantle as the responsible good shepherd who would provide stable assurance. It will be a future Messiah for them, but we know Him to be Jesus Christ, who is our comfort in times of trouble. And what God does as a great shepherd to His sheep is what He does for us today because He is unchanging in His ways. 
So the four characteristics of this good shepherd to his sheep hopefully will serve as biblical truths to serve as comfort to us as we go through times of trouble. Look at verse 11 and 12 of chapter 34. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. In verses 11 to 12, we see a word that is emphasized in this sheep-shepherd analogy. We see the word seek. He seeks for us. He searches for us. You see, God doesn't wait for his sheep to wander back. We think that it's like the story of the prodigal son. The son has to come back when he realizes he has hit rock bottom. But remember the story? What did the father do? The father was there every day looking whether his son will return or not. God doesn't wait for his sheep to wander back. He doesn't say, well, you know, you left, you've been scattered, I don't care about you, I just wait till a new herd arises. He personally seeks out those who have been scattered. In this context, God himself will search out for the nation of Israel that has been scattered to the four corners of this earth, and he will bring them back together in the time of the millennium, where he will give them their land allotment, which he has promised way back in Genesis chapter 12 in the Abrahamic covenant. You see, this prophecy of encouragement was that God says, I'm going to look for you. You may be scattered, but I'm going to bring you back. It's not fulfilled today, but that's the promise of the good shepherd. Now you say, well, that's in the context of the nation of Israel. How does it work as we are Christians? It's the same with us as Christians. Remember the parable in the New Testament? The good shepherd. He leaves the 99 to do what for the one? To search for the one. What a comfort it is to know that in our troubled times, God so deeply cares for us that he doesn't wait for us to be the one that calls out to him. He is already actively seeking us out to help us. That's what the Bible tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 26 to 27. Listen as I read Romans 8, 26 to 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. God the Father searches the hearts of men, but he knows what we're going through in our troubled times because God the Holy Spirit brings our needs and our concerns before the heavenly throne, listen carefully, before a word of prayer is uttered from our mouths. Think about that. That's the type of soul care the Lord has for us. Before a word of supplication leaves our mouth, the Heavenly Father who has actively searched 
How he can help us in our troubled time already knows it because God the Holy Spirit has told him. It is the understanding that you and I are never alone, that there is one who seeks us out. I know it's hard to imagine, but back in the days when I was really fit, I used to love hiking. I used to love hiking in the mountains, and I would often go on the weekends to the mountains of Colorado. And I remember one weekend I did something very foolish. I went on a trail alone. I went hiking by myself. And they always tell you, never hike alone. But I was so confident, as long as I stayed on the trail and looked for the trail markers, I wouldn't get lost. Well, I missed one corner, and I missed the trail marker, and I went off trail, and I realized that I was lost. And there are a few times in my life that I will admit to you that I was scared. But at that moment, when I was lost in the foothill mountains of Colorado, I was scared. I thought to myself, at the young age of 21, I'm going to die. No one's going to search for me. I was living my rebellious years. I thought, I don't need to tell my parents anywhere, uh, anywhere I'm going. I don't need to tell my parents what I'm doing. So I went by myself, and I was scared. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be eaten by bears. I'm going, and what a dumb way to die. You know, the worst feeling is if you're in the middle of nowhere and realizing that no one is looking for you. That's a terrible feeling. But after my panic attack, I settled down because I'd remembered that I told my friend, if you don't hear from me in two hours, then send someone to look for me. The knowledge of knowing that someone is looking for you versus the knowledge that no one is looking for you is night and day. It changes how you approach this life. And so when you're going through times of trouble, understand that the Bible tells us the Good Shepherd, God Himself, actively searches for those He cares so much about. And that's the first principle I want you to take away, number one, if you're taking notes. Our comfort in troubled times is knowing that God cares enough to look for us. Our comfort in troubled times is knowing that God cares enough to look for us. And so you may have a troubled teenager. You may have a son or or a daughter who's not living a very Christ-like life. They are living the life of the world. And you care deeply for them. But I want you to understand that there is God Himself who cares even more than you do. And He is seeking them out. He is searching for them to bring them back. Because many parents tell me, Pastor, this is what troubles me in my life. My children do not walk in the ways of Jesus Christ as they were foundationed in when they grew up in the church. I say pray for them. Be comforted. God is watching over them and He is seeking them out. And at His perfect timing, when they humble themselves, God will bring them back. Verse 13 to verse 15. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. 
and I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. If you read verses 13 to 15, there's one word that is emphasized. What is that word? It is the word feed. I hope you're not hungry. But it says, I will feed them, verse 13, I will feed them in good pasture. I will feed them in rich pasture. I will feed my flock. You know, it's a wonderful assurance from our Heavenly Father, specifically in that context, the nation of Israel. Not only will He bring them back from the exile, that when he brings them back into the promised land allotment in the millennium, he will literally feed them, note this, with the best of everything. You see, we may think that the emphasis is on the feeding part. The feeding is good. But the emphasis is on the type of feeding, the best of pastures. You see, when God rewards and blesses and honors, he gives his best. There is a corresponding verse in the book of Isaiah, chapter 25, verse 6. One of my favorite verses. And you'll see why. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the same mountain in reference here in verses 13 to 15. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. What a great verse. The Bible tells us when He gathers His people, He will lay out for us a buffet spread that you have never imagined. The best of everything. And I love this phrase. Rich food, full of marrow. Let me give you the, 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 the Hebrew emphasis of this. You ever eat or drink bulalo, the soup? And you know, there's usually, they leave there one bone at a restaurant. And everyone fights for that bone because everyone wants to suck the marrow from the bone. But there's only one bone. Such a big bone, such little marrow. It's almost unsatisfying. You suck it out, you feel that it's not enough. Or you sometimes go to a more fancy restaurant and they have bone marrow as an appetizer and you pay like 3,000 pesos for a bone marrow and you scoop in one scoop all the marrow and you say, well, that's it? The Bible tells us, and I'm not making this up, you don't ever have to fight for bone marrow again if you like that stuff. You can have marrow to your heart's content without a cholesterol problem. God says here, I promise enough for everyone. Now, I don't know what type of animals He's going to make up in heaven that gives us marrow that much, but hey, God says, no mind has comprehended what God has prepared for those who love Him. But there's more to this. The Bible tells us He gives us His best. But notice in verse 14 and 15, there's something else we do. And they shall lie down in a good fold. I will feed my flock, verse 15, and I will make them lie down. Now what's the importance of this emphasis? I think the important point is that when God gives the best, He gives it when you are resting. Let me unpack this for you. 
I know none of you are sheep herders. I know none of you are animal handlers. But have you ever seen a video or ever seen a, a picture where a shepherd is pushing on the butt of the sheep and saying, sit down, lie down? Anyone? No. Shepherds don't do that to sheep. Do you ever see a horse wrangler push down a horse? You don't see camel herders telling camel and jumping on their back, get down. You, you don't. Animals lie down when they feel safe. When they feel safe. Now, what's the point of this? The point of this is this. In God's giving of His best, there is rest involved. Because even if you have the best of food, or if you have the best that life can offer, you may have the best, but you won't be able to enjoy it if you are bound, bothered by life's many problems. Think about that. I've been to New York City's finest restaurants. The food is amazing. It's expensive. And you see, usually during lunchtime, businessmen all gathered. They can afford places like this. But if you ever watch them, or just go to an expensive restaurant and, and watch the people there. The food is amazing. They literally have the best that the world can offer. But as I watch a lot of the businessmen in New York enjoying the finest of food, I notice that they're on their phones. And if you overhear their conversation, they're worried about the tanking stock market. They're worried about their bond yields. They're worried about their family life, whom they've neglected because they're so busy on Wall Street. They're so tired because they sleep four hours a day fighting this corporate rat race. They're investment bankers. They're management consultants. And they're only eating at a place like this, only for sustenance. If you ask them what they ate, they, they, they wouldn't even know. You could say, wow, you had the best cut of filet mignon. For them, it's just food. Because they're full of problems. You see, you can have the best that this life offers. But if there is no rest that comes with it, it's not really the best. Just look up and down Banawi or go on Wilson Street. There are a lot of great restaurants and you eat at those establishments. But if you look around, especially Banawi, these fine restaurants, along the side streets, you see a lot of people, right? But they're not eating at these fine establishments. They're just eating at those roadway, uh, sidewalk restaurants. Do you ever envy them? You know, I sometimes do. Because if you watch them, they're sitting in a an air-conditioned space. Their food isn't of the highest quality, but boy, are they having a lot of fun. There's always a smile on their face. They're drinking their beer. They're singing karaoke till 3 o'clock in the morning. They don't have a care in the world. And I bet you, as you're driving down Banawi or Wilson, you're probably telling your kids, don't be like them. Look at them. They don't even know how to save money. They get their salary and then they burn it all on a Friday afternoon, Saturday evening event. Now, and I'm telling you to emulate them, but I'm telling you at that moment, at that moment, they're enjoying the happiest time of their life. At that moment, I bet you they're having the best of time. At that moment, they're happier than half the people in the restaurants who are eating at a finer established place. Why? 
They don't have a care in the world. Now, their problems will come later. But at that moment, they don't have a care in the world. Because sometimes we get so caught up thinking that the best of this life will bring me happiness. But what we forget is it's not the best material object. It's not the best possession. What is best is when it is associated with rest. And here's the second thing I want you to understand. Number two. Our comfort in troubled times is to understand that God gives you the best when He gives you rest. God gives you the best when He gives you rest. You see, rest is not the absence of any troubles, just as much as peace is not the absence of trials. It is the realization that God can and is taking care of your problems. He is in control because the most troubling time of your life and my life is when you realize that there is no solution, there is no hope, and so you begin to panic. What will we do? But our comfort in troubled times is when we know that there is a solution found in the omnipotent, omniscient Savior who tells us, rest. Cast your burdens on me. Rest. Relax. Remember that famous psalm? You know it well, Psalm 23. You can memorize it, actually. But that's the problem sometimes. We know it so well that we never look into the words. Psalm 23, verse 4. What does it say? It says these words. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. We all love that psalm, and we know this verse well. I want you to analyze verse 4. The Bible tells us, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are in the process. You are in troubled times. The psalmist writes, I will not fear. Why? Because you're with me. But then we stop there. Well, I go through troubled times and God's with me, but I'm still scared. We forget that last part. Your rod and your staff. This is a shepherd's psalm. So the rod and the staff is a shepherd's staff. What does it do? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The knowledge that there is a good shepherd who leads you and tells you, I give you the best. Which correlates to this idea in Ezekiel chapter 34. Should remind us that our comfort, which Psalm 23 verse 4 says, our comfort is the knowledge that the shepherd gives us his best when he allows us to rest in him. So I don't know what problems you're going through. And we're always going to go through problems because it is the definition of life on this side of heaven. We are going through troubled times. There will never be a moment when you don't have any problems, when you will not be troubled of soul. When you're young, you're worried about getting a job. When you have a job, you worry about getting married. When you get married, you're worried about having children. When you have children, you're worried about your children. When you get older, you're worried who's going to take care of you. When you get sick, you wonder if you'll get well. 
In those troubled times, our comfort is in knowing that our Heavenly Father tells us, rest. That's part of the best that I give you, rest. Verse 16. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. Verse 16 is one of those verses you should not take out of context. Because if you take out of context this verse, it may refer to you when it says, I will destroy the fat and the strong. It can be taken out of context by health buffs. Look, God says, He destroys the fat and the strong. Thankfully, it is in the context of talking about sheep. Context is very important. Now, the reason Ezekiel writes these words is because God is condemning the irresponsible shepherds. They had fattened themselves. They had strengthened themselves by taking advantage of other people. Their greed had caused them to be fattened. And the point is, you may enjoy the good things now, Enjoy the good things now in this life, but then you will be judged. How? Look at verse 17. And as for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture? and to have drunk of the clear waters that you must foul the residue with your feet. And as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet, and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you have pushed with side and shoulder, but at all the weak ones with your horns, and scattered them abroad. Therefore I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. Contextually, these verses speak about the time when God will judge the people of Israel as they enter the millennial kingdom. Prior to entering this wonderful messianic kingdom, God will separate the righteous from the unrighteous, allowing only the righteous to enter into this new kingdom. The reason the fat sheep representing the unrighteous, was like that, was because they took advantage of others. In fact, they were so evil in their heart that even though they were taking on so much in this life, even in the leftovers, they didn't leave it for the other people. That which they could not carry, they trampled upon the other things so that other people could not get it. This is a picture of the rat race today. None of us ever say, well, I'm blessed, so I hope other people will be blessed as well. No. We say, I'm blessed, and I'm going to make sure that other people are not blessed just so that they can't take my job in the future, just so that they won't be better than me. And so they push the downtrodden down even more. And that's why the other sheep in the flock become skinnier. What does God say in verse 22? I will take their advantage away. You shall no longer be a prey. He says that to the skinny sheep. I will give you the advantage because I will judge between sheep and sheep. You will no longer be the victim. 
you will no longer be unfairly treated. You've had your fun. You've had your time of taking advantage of others. Now for the rest of eternity, you will be judged. Now I don't know about you, but what a great comfort in troubled times. To know that there is a God who sees all, and to know that there is a God who judges those who take advantage of you. That's our third principle, number three. Our comfort in troubled times is to know that God judges to make things right. It's not a new concept, but it's a good reminder. Our comfort in troubled times is to know that God judges to make things right. A lot of our troubles come when we're troubled in our heart. And we're troubled in our heart because someone is messing with us. We're troubled because there's someone out there that tells lies about our lives. There's one out there who's trying to ruin and to destroy our character with gossip. There's one out there who thinks that life is a game and he he uses me as a pawn. And they've destroyed my life so that I can't succeed. And in that bitterness and that anger, a lot of people feel that they live in troubled times. They don't succeed and they blame it on the fact that others have caused them not to be able to succeed. Doesn't it trouble you? Doesn't it make you mad? Really mad. It does me. When there are people who are successful and wealthy only because they use unethical means to get what they have. I'm here to tell you, don't let it bother you. Don't let it trouble your spirit. Take comfort. The good shepherd will separate sheep from sheep. It is a repeated promise, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that He will make things right. I hope you believe that. Because if you don't believe that truth, then you and I will become very bitter because this life is unfair and all the unfair things we see trouble us. And so we wake up every morning and we're bothered by the politicians of this country of ours. And we think, boy, how can they steal from this country? And it seems like nothing ever happens to them. They seem to go get away with everything. They just go to a confessional booth and their sins are absolved. How does that work? It's unfair. Let me tell you what. The Bible tells us very clearly... God will judge the sheep and the sheep. Meaning, while our sins, if we have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, while our sins will never be used against us from an eternal sense, means it doesn't prevent us from going to heaven. As I've said many times, that this book teaches personal responsibility the sins of your life will be accounted for. God is a fair God. His fairness does not mean that everyone gets the same thing when they go to heaven. The Bible is very clear. There are levels of rewards in heaven. The Bible is also very clear. There are levels of punishment in hell. Yes, the separation between hell and heaven is very clear based on whether you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior or not. But in heaven and in hell, God is also very fair. 
when he gives levels of rewards and degrees of punishment. That's why we can take comfort that when we as Christians in this life try to live out a Christ-like life over other Christians who say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven, and I'm going to live my life however I want, you can take solace in the fact that when we get to heaven, both of us, that God will reward us in a way where we won't look back at this life and say, you know what? I regretted the way I lived. In fact, it's all throughout Scripture. Remember the Beatitudes? God says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Don't let the unfair things of life trouble your soul and therefore lead you into a troubled life. Our comfort is knowing that God makes things right when He judges. Verse 23. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Here in verses 23 and 24, we have a clear identification of who is this responsible, righteous shepherd. And that is the person of Jesus Christ, who will see to it that all of these prophetic promises are fulfilled when he sits on the Davidic throne in the millennium where he will not only rule over the Jewish nation, but he will rule over the world for a thousand years. And what will he do? Look at verse 25. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their seasons. There shall be showers of blessing. This is where the words of the songs are taken from. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord, when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. I will... Raise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with the hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles anymore. Now, contextually, this is describing the promised millennium. Because God entered into a peace covenant with the nation of Israel, the people of Israel will have finally what they've always longed for. They will never have to be scared of wild animals that may devour them that roam the land. Isn't that great in the millennium? We'll be a part of that. There will be no more carnivorous animals. Today, if you go to a night safari, you've got to be in your car. In the future, you can actually hug the lion. You can hug the tiger if you want. You can't do it now, and I suggest you don't do it now. You may not live very long. But you can hug all the animals you've always wanted to hug, and it not being a stuffed animal. That's why the Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah, the wolf will lay down with the lamb. The Bible tells us the nation will feel safe, north, south, east, west. They will be safe. They will have life-giving rain. The Dead Sea will no longer be dead, full of salt water that 
Almost nothing can live inside, but it will once again rejuvenate the land around it. The crops will yield great abundance. And all of this happens. Why? Verse 25. Because of a covenant of peace. We often think that peace is only the absence of problems or conflict. But when God makes a covenant of peace, that word is more wide-ranging. It talks about the fact that not only is there the absence of conflict, but you don't have to worry about everything or anything. This covenant of peace ensures that the nation of Israel will no longer have to worry about animals and crops and abundance of rain. It's all there because of this covenant of peace between God and the nation. Now you may be saying, well, where's our covenant? We're not Jewish. Well, we have something similar. We have a special covenant of peace with God as believers. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace does not mean that there is an absence of problem, but this peace means we don't have to worry about anything because of Jesus Christ. God the Son promised that when He left in the ascension that He would send God the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. I want you to think about that. God says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who is God Himself and He will always be with you and you have nothing to be afraid of and you can have the peace that passes all understanding. You see, a lot of us don't have this peace because we focus on the wrong thing. When our troubled times hit, our trust is in the result. And because that result is so uncertain, there is never peace in our hearts. But the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that we have peace with God through a person. Our focus should not be on the result. It should focus on the person. Here we are, many sick people, they're waiting for them to be healed. And they will not have peace unless they're healed. Well, that's a problem. Because what if it's God's will that you are not healed or that your sickness is extended? Does that mean you'll never have peace? It's because we placed our focus in the result instead of the person. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. A lot of you know that the lottery has hit one billion pesos. A lot of people have invested and even prayed and even have asked that their ticket be dedicated or sprinkled with holy water. And yet it keeps growing because people aren't winning this thing. I'll get in when it's about three billion. Their entire hope is on the offhand chance that they'll hit all the numbers. What a sad, sad way to live life. We all shake our heads at those who play the lotto. And we shake our heads because we say, well, that's so ridiculous. The chances of winning are so inconsequential, are so small. And yet, the lure of it is still there. The lure 
is because of a guaranteed result of what life will be like if I hit the jackpot. Problem. hundred million people, maybe one will win it. That doesn't seem like very good odds, does it? But here we go, living our Christian life, always basing the peace of God in our life based on the results. God says, no, it is in the form of a person. This is important to understand. Because earlier I told you that I was able to track three waves of times when people, quite a few people, left our church. And as I interviewed and talked to those people, the reasons for the departure can be put into three Ps. Some of them left because of the pastor. The pastor did not meet their expectations. The pastor wasn't much of a leader. The pastor, they thought, couldn't preach. The pastor failed them somehow. The pastor didn't visit them when they called him to visit at 4 o'clock in the morning. Who knows? But the pastor is one aspect. The other P is people. They left because of the people in this church. They left because they thought the people were too cliquish. They all stuck together. They weren't part of the in crowd. They left because there was someone in the church they didn't like. And they couldn't bear the thought of seeing them every week. And so they left. They left the church because someone in the church had taken money from them. They left the church because someone in the church had failed them somehow. They left because of people. The third reason is programs. They left because they thought that there was another church with a better program. That the programs weren't as exciting here in this church. It's too conservative. And they left because they were not part of a program. Or the program didn't fit their schedule. The reason I mention this now is because I'm not naive. We've had a good run. This past decade, God has been gracious. There hasn't been a major incident that has caused people to leave. But because of a flourishing work, the evil one will be that much more focused on trying to disrupt the work of God. Our church possibly could be going through times of trouble next year. It could go through troubled times the year after. Five years from now, our church could go through troubled times ten years from now. But here's one thing I want you to remember. When those troubled times do come to this church, make sure that your focus is not on the pastor because the pastor will fail you. The pastor may say something that offends you the pastor may make a mistake. But don't leave because of the pastor. There may come to a point where you get into a disagreement with someone and in those times of trouble you will leave because of the people of the church. There is no perfect church. The church is made up of imperfect people. And there will always be one or two that offends you, misunderstand you, 
miscommunicates to you something and you feel bad, don't leave because of people. Don't leave because of program. There may come to a time in your life you say, well, you know, the church down the street, they've got strobe, strobe lights and they've got funky music and, you know, it's a lot more active there. They've got better programs. They, they offer better food at their church. Their coffee isn't three-in-one like ours. They have Starbucks. Their pastor doesn't yell, us at, yell at us for being late. Yours does. It's me. They have better programs. Don't leave the church because of that. Keep your focus. If this church ever goes through a time of trouble, keep your focus on the perfecter of faith. Keep your focus on the provider of peace. Because those who remain faithful in troubled times are those whose focus is on the one who alone brings comfort. He is the Prince of Peace. And He's the one that in our unsettled hearts says, Peace be still. I will take care of your problems. I hope you will be spiritually mature enough not to look at those three Ps, but to always focus on the one alone who brings comfort and hope. The people of Israel will now go through 70 years of exile. In those 70 years, it will be a time of discouragement. Read the book of Lamentations. You'll understand. They will be discouraged. They will wonder if God sees the sorrow of their hearts in their troubled times. That's why the prophet Ezekiel was sent to them as a watchman of that generation to bring them the message of hope that their focus should not be on their leaders. Their focus should not be on what they have in life. Their focus should not be on what they're going to get, but their focus should be upon their Lord. As it is today in our life as well, in the Christian life, your focus should not be on what you can get out of the Christian life. Your focus should not be on the results of having a great faith and thinking that God's going to give you monetary, physical possession wealth your focus and my focus should be the one who says to us I will give you a peace that passes all understanding where you can live life worry free that is the promise of the comforter when we go through troubled times finally verse 30 and 31 thus they shall know that I the Lord their God am with them and they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. God was in a unique relationship with Israel. He says, you are my flock. He promised to be a comfort for them in troubled times because of that unique relationship. We are also in a unique relationship with our God through Christ. You are my child. And He promises us to be a comfort in troubled times. He is our comfort in troubled times because He cares so much for us. He, he cares so much for us. He seeks us out. He gives us the best when He gives us rest. He judges to make sure that things 
are made right. And he gives each one, each one of us an everlasting peace. I'm not sure what you're going through in this life this morning. You may have troubles in your home. You may have troubles at work. You may have troubles with your colleague. You may have troubles with your family. You may have troubles with your friends. But take comfort today. God deeply cares for you. And he is our comforter in times of trouble. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is a good reminder even to me that we all go through times of troubles in this lifetime. But your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You are the good shepherd who seeks us out. You know our problems even before we utter them in a voice of prayer. You vindicate you give peace, you give rest. I hope your people this morning will with spiritual maturity understand what a life-transforming truth it is to know that there is a comfort in troubled times. And may we as watchmen of this generation indeed fulfill our purpose to tell a troubled world there is a comforter who can bring peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.